Hello, friends, and welcome to the Stand to Reason podcast. We are so glad that you are here joining us. This is a show where we do our best to give you a dose of clear thinking Christianity because we think Christianity is worth thinking about. Now, at this point, you've probably already noticed that this is not Greg Kokel. That's right. It is Tim Barnett. I am filling in the filling in for uh, Greg today um, because we actually have a special show lined up for you. In fact, we thought it would be kind of fun um, if if we had Elisa Childers on to discuss a book that her and I have written called The Deconstruction of Christianity, and just kind of give you guys a sense of what's in the book, maybe uh, some of the things that went into uh, writing it creatively, that kind of thing. So without further ado, Alisa, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be on this show with you, Tim, even though you're not, you know, the the boss man himself, (laughs) but we'll, we'll take it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to have to put up with me either way. Um, now, maybe uh, we should just, I got to start with this question, because I know inquiring minds want to know, what is it like to work with the Mr. B? Like, what is that like? So this is <laughs> a wonderful question, because there's a lot of mystery surrounding Mr. B, this mysterious character on TikTok and Instagram <clears throat> that so flawlessly red pens these deconstructionist TikToks and progressive Christian TikToks. So, um, you know, yeah. it, it was it was great. I think that it mm. was um I'm so glad that we got to do this together because I didn't want to have to do this all by myself because this was (laughs) this was really hard. Right. This was a hard book to write. And so, Tim, I've just really enjoyed this journey with you and wrestling through a lot of these things together. And um, yeah, it's just been great. I think it's been it's hard to co-write a book, but I think I could not have picked a better person to to do that with. So. Well, I you know, I was kind of fishing for some compliments there, as you could probably (laughs) tell. Um, but in all seriousness, yeah, and we can get into some of that uh, maybe a little bit later on, but yeah, we, we definitely, um, really kind of mesh together well, putting this thing together and I'm with you. I don't think I would have wanted to write this book on my own and to be honest, and as we'll, as we'll mention, as we move along here, there were things and insights that I think came out of the two of us wrestling mm-hmm. with this issue. Would you agree yeah. with that? I would agree. I think there there was a lot of wrestling because I think the deconstruction phenomenon is a fairly new thing. Mm. It's No, of course, people have always been leaving the faith. People have been walking away. But as we're yeah. seeing it manifest in culture right now on social media and with the hashtags and just with the evangelistic nature of the whole thing, this is sort of a new thing. And so I think a lot mm. of people are are just sort of beginning to think about what this movement is, what it means, what the word means, what's happening yeah. to people. And so it's it's sort of one of those things where I, I remember when we were starting to write the book thinking, well, nobody we would see all these articles come out about what deconstruction means. And I remember thinking, well, nobody gets to claim to know that right now. Like we this is the time we fight yeah. over the definition. Right. This is That's where right. everybody gets to throw their hat in the ring and say, look, this is what yeah. I see happening or this is what I analyze happening. And that's another thing I was going to say about co-writing with you is I would have to honestly just say it's not that I didn't want to write it by myself, although I didn't. But it's also that I knew that I couldn't. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is I knew that I needed to have somebody with more of a 
philosophical background because there's a lot of philosophy that needed to be uh, unpacked, analyzed, and understood and articulated that I did not feel that I had that enough of a robust philosophical background mm-hmm. to be able to do it by myself. And so with your credentials in that area, I think that brought so much to uh, the analysis of, of what we did. Well, I think it's going to segue nicely because um, you mentioned a moment ago that a lot of people are using the term to mean different things. I mean, there was a lot of confusion and still is a lot of confusion about the word deconstruction. In fact, we open our book with a story of a skillet frontman, John Cooper, who is a, a friend of yours. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to call him a friend of mine. He did endorse the yeah. book, although I've never actually met him. And so maybe <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to make that introduction for us. Yes. But he actually declares war against deconstruction. And of course, the online uh, Christian world went nuts. Can you kind of yeah. fill us in on some of those details and and um, and how that kind of how that made its way into our book? Yeah. So I'll even back up a little further because I think it's relevant to at least my journey in Mm. thinking about this word. So back when I wrote my first book in 2019, I wrote about this faith crisis that I had gone through where I became totally persuaded intellectually that I couldn't trust my Bible, that probably a lot of the people that I thought existed that the Bible talks about didn't really exist, that there were contradictions Mm. in the Bible, that we don't even have an accurate copy of what was written. And so it really threw me into this faith crisis that I talk about in that book. And it was years of literally busting everything down to the studs, rethinking everything, building back my worldview, reflecting the evidence that I had investigated over years and coming to conclusions about what I thought was true about God and the Bible and and reality. And I called it deconstruction in that book. I, I said, you know, that's what I went through is deconstruction. Then I noticed that over the years when I would start to talk about my deconstruction, deconstructionists, the people that were quoting in the book and the people that, you know, who's the movement we're analyzing, would come into the comments and say, you didn't deconstruct. You don't understand deconstruction because you still have toxic theology. And I remember being so puzzled by that, thinking, well, wait, I did all the same work everybody else did. I mean, I I took everything apart. I deconstruct. Mm -hmm. I I was thinking of the word almost in construction terms at that time. And but they were saying no, because you part you don't deconstruct unless you get rid of toxic theology and you have toxic theology. In fact, you're a toxic and harmful person is what they would tell me. And so I started to think it through, like maybe maybe that isn't what I did. Maybe I did something else. And so right around the time I was really wrestling with what I thought happened to me, John Cooper gets up in front of, I don't know, 20,000 or so youth at the Winter Jam Festival and says, it's time to declare war on the Christian deconstruction movement. And this went viral, like you mentioned, on Twitter, both on Christian Twitter and on the deconstruction Twitter. So I think it was Derek Webb, who is a high-platformed deconstructionist, who sent it viral among the deconstructionists. And he was saying, oh, you know, this is so much fear. This this is harming people. And he was trying to encourage young kids who are deconstructing, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then all these articles started being written. And we're talking high, high profile platforms, people like the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, 
the Royce report. There were there were several others that all claimed to know what this word means, but they all were saying different things. Mm -hmm. So some of the articles were saying, you know, John doesn't know what he's talking about. He's misusing the word. But then other ones were saying, no, this is exactly what it is. And so it was like everybody was defining the word differently. And I think that that moment when he declared war on deconstruction was the moment when the church realized we're all talking about this word. And we're meaning really, really, really different things when we use it. And so that's when I started to think, okay, it's time to write a book where we present a definition and defend that definition Mm -hmm. uh, because now's the time when everybody's doing that. And so I wanted us to be able to throw our hat in the ring because what I primarily saw in the deconstruction movement was something that was destructive, that was actually destroying the faith. And when I would travel around and speak at different churches, it's like the people in the pews knew— the deconstruction was bad. I didn't have to tell yeah. them that. The pastors that were dealing with this on the ground level knew, but it was these kind of think tanks, these Christian think tanks that have these online platforms that were saying, oh no, you know, deconstruction is a good thing if you do it in the right way. And it was just, there was so much confusion around the word. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's why it was, I felt such a sense of urgency to write the book now. And I'm so glad for that event because that really yeah. unveiled that we're defining this word differently. Totally. And uh, this this leads nicely before we kind of give the definition that we came down with on uh, what is deconstruction. The, I would say the hardest sentence that we wrote in the book was this definition for deconstruction. And you and I, it, it was probably months where we went back and forth, back and forth. How do we define this thing after looking through, you know, combing through all the posts that are online and reading the books and listening to the podcasts and all the stuff that's out there. What is this thing called deconstruction? So maybe um, you can tell us, okay, what is our definition? And and maybe a little bit of why it was so, you know, difficult to kind yeah. of land here. And, and honestly, I was a little nervous. I'll just speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I was a little with this book coming out because we were saying something that frankly, most people, even friendly people to us, weren't sane. And so mm-hmm. there have been books written about deconstruction that don't take our approach and don't use our definition. And that, I mean, it, feel, it feels a little lonely when you're the yeah. one voice on this. And I think that's what makes our book uh, unique, yeah. is we're kind of that one crying in the wilderness, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, on our <laughs> own. And, but I do think there are many who agree with us. Um, mm-hmm. And we're seeing that as, you know, as the, as the reviews come in and as we travel around and talk to people. So, so tell me what's our definition and kind of why was it difficult to land here? Yeah. So our definition in a sentence is that deconstruction is a postmodern process of rethinking your spiritual beliefs, but not regarding scripture as a standard. And that, again, like I said, was, like you said, was the hardest sentence in the book to write because there were certain elements we knew had to be in there, the postmodern element, the rejection of biblical authority element. We needed people to understand that this is sort of a a shift of authority from Mm -hmm. believing that there's an objective truth about God to be known to the authority of the self. Uh, And so we, we defined it that way, but that was a difficult definition because if you ask 10 people, I've heard you say this, Tim, if you ask 10 people what deconstruction is, you're going to get 11 def- different definitions. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that I 
I was confident in our definition because I've I've mm-hmm. observed this movement for so many years. And mm-hmm. in in my analysis and what I've seen as I followed it for years and years is that most people, you go back 10 years, five, six, seven years, most people defined it as a deconversion, right? Deconstruction mm-hmm. means deconversion. I mean, you could even go back to articles that were written by um, I, w- I won't say the name, but just a, a scholar I really respect. And he, when he first started talking about deconstruction, used the word interchangeably with deconversion. And then yeah. after the John Cooper thing, that changes a little bit. Oh, no, maybe it's okay. Maybe it can be good if you do it in a healthy way. So, t- you know, Tim, we we toyed with that. We Because I was still kind of confused, honestly, about what happened to me. I was still holding on to that word deconstruction. But then I was like, but I didn't, I didn't give in to postmodernism. I actually wanted to know what was true. I wanted to investigate evidence in reality and not just reject beliefs that didn't feel right to me. I wanted to make sure that what I believed was true. So that's not deconstruction according to our definition. And so that's why I even correct myself in this book. I even say I used to use this word. I actually don't use that word anymore. I mean, yes, it had all of the crisis. It had uh, the agonizing, you know, mood of the whole thing, the difficulty, the years-long struggle. But it wasn't deconstruction. And I think once I let go of that, it, it for me, everything just became totally clear. I don't know why I was trying to hold on to that word. But once I let it go, I was like, okay, now the categories are clear. I understand what happened to me is different than what is happening in the deconstruction echo chamber online, which, by the way, you know, the 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 online space of deconstruction is is the primary place where this is happening. And the reason for that is because people have already decided that Christian beliefs are toxic, you know, that toxic theology that would tell you you're a sinner and there's a place called hell and things like that. They've already decided that that's toxic and harmful. So the the disconnection from church friends, even blood family that we've seen in our research, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. People are going to be looking for community in other places. And so they have found these massive communities online to disciple them, literally disciple them in their deconstructions. And then, of course, as we discovered, there's all manner of deconstruction coaching sites, deconstruction therapy sites, and none of yeah. these sites are going to point you toward the historic Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of these sites are going to just, even if they're neutral, they're going to say, you know, you find what works for you. You follow you, what yeah. you need for you, right? Yeah. Not what yeah. reflects reality. So I think the struggle for us is we even toyed with, okay, maybe we can come up with some idea of a healthy deconstruction versus an unhealthy deconstruction. But the more we tried to make that work, we just couldn't make it work because it was nearly impossible to find the healthy deconstruction. Like take mm-hmm. Lecrae, for example. We mm-hmm. quote him in the book as somebody who promotes this sort of, quote unquote, healthy deconstruction, where he's saying, you know, deconstruct according to scripture, get rid of all the cultural stuff. And yeah, I mean, we agree, De- you know, assess your beliefs according to scripture, get rid of anything cultural that's not biblical. But the problem is, is the more you probe into that story, the more you see emerge a, a real deconstruction as we as we define it. You know, you yeah. see the, the ad- adoption of critical theory-informed worldviews and things that are more of a social justice gospel. And I'm not saying that Lecrae is not a Christian. I, I'm certainly not saying that at all. But what we're seeing are the markers of even our definition of deconstruction mm-hmm. that's actually not really healthy because it's approaching, even if you're using scripture, it's approaching scripture from this kind of critical theory mindset. So it, yeah. it became really difficult to find that healthy version of deconstruction. And we, I mean, I think when we started out, 
I know I was teaching, uh, had a few presentations that I'd given up to that point where I was using the term healthy deconstruction, unhealthy deconstruction. And when we started, we were playing around with those words. Hey, do we add adjectives like healthy, unhealthy, good, bad to the word deconstruction? And we ended up saying, you know what? There is something fundamental about deconstruction itself that is wrong. It's not a neutral thing. And then you either do it, you know, you can do it healthy or unhealthy, good or bad. There is something fundamental about the process itself. It's not just a that Mm -hmm. someone deconstructed. It's a how. It's a methodology. It's a um, process. So we, we, in the book, we talk about baptizing words and we say, look, this is not the word that we should be baptizing. Um, so could you maybe spell out one of those reasons or a couple of those reasons why we're, we're kind of sound the alarm bell a little bit. Don't use the word. Yeah. Don't, don't get up on stage evangelical pastor and say, Hey, let's all deconstruct together, but let's do it with the Bible, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so w- why, why are we saying don't baptize this word? Right. Cause a lot of people criticize us thinking, Oh, you're just arguing over semantics. And I want to be clear, if what we're doing in our book is a clarion call to the church. This is we are sounding the alarm for pastors and parents and loved ones of people who are deconstructing. But if you have someone in your life, I'm just talking to anybody listening right now. If you have someone in your life who's deconstructing, who maybe has been through spiritual abuse, they're really wounded and they're hurt and they're saying they're deconstructing, but they're talking to you and they're open to you pointing them toward truth and helping them heal from those wounds and all of that. I am not saying that you should correct their grammar, right? Like, don't quibble with them over (laughs) words. That's not what we're saying. That's right. What we're saying is we're speaking to the thought leaders, the pastors. We're saying, pastors, don't don't get up and tell your audience to deconstruct because what they're going to find is something very, very unhealthy. So -hmm. there's a different dynamic, of course, as this would apply to an individual person. But the main the main reason that we say you shouldn't baptize the word is because words matter. And I want to give you Mm -hmm. a perfect example of this just this week. So I don't know, Tim, if you have you I mean, I'm sure everybody by now has heard the song Facts by Tom McDonald oh, with yeah, Ben yeah. Shapiro rapping. That's right. right. Yeah, um, that I just I, I really personally loved the song. I did. I know okay. that they're not Christians. I know that, you know, not everything was in the spirit of Christ. But I just thought they're saying things a lot of people think, but just maybe are too afraid to say I, I thought it was. Mm overall good for culture. Well, then I watched Jordan Peterson, which this just was so hilarious to me because he's such a high level intellectual. And he does this hour long analysis of this like hardcore rap song with, you know, Ben Shapiro rapping. So he would stop every few minutes, but he said something that really got me thinking about why words are so important. And this is how I would even respond about the word deconstruction, but he did it with the word gender. So in the rap, Tom McDonald starts out by saying there's only two genders, boys and girls. That's at the almost at the very beginning. And Jordan Peterson stopped that. And people might think he's nitpicking, but he he said that word should not have been genders because that's conceding language. Culture has invented this idea that there's this core identity that's gender that's separate from sex. He said the word should have been there are only two sexes. And I thought, you know, people might think he's nitpicking, but this matters. And it actually made me think, like, maybe I should stop using the word gender because that is conceding language and it means something else in culture. And there's only two sexes. So same with deconstruction. It really matters 
what the word means. Now, of course, we know language changes over time. Uh, you know, we, I think we even mentioned this in the book that there are words mm-hmm. that um, meant something in medieval times that the, the word means even the opposite today. So we sure. recognize yeah. that words change in their vernacular, their under the general understanding of culture. But what we're trying to do right now is figure out what deconstruction means to the broader culture. And then is it connected to this postmodern idea of, of a rejection of absolute truth? Now, I will tell you, Tim, you know, we are in the minority, I think, right now, although I think we're persuading a lot of people. I've had a lot of people mm-hmm. tell me I've persuaded them. And, and almost to a person, when I've sat, you know, face to face with somebody who was using the healthy deconstruction paradigm, I've explained kind of our categories. And, and almost everybody but maybe one person has said, you know what? That is better. I, I'm going to stop yeah. using that healthy deconstruction thing. So, and every philosopher that I've asked over the past like five years, whenever I've been in the presence of a like professional philosopher, I've asked them, do you think there's a postmodern element to deconstruction? And to a person, every single one of them has said yes. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we have good, we're in good company. We have good backing, but we don't want to baptize the word for several reasons. First of all, because we're conceding language to culture. Mm-hmm. But also, when we baptize words like that, it causes confusion. So let's say you have a young person in your youth group who says, yeah, I'm deconstructing. And what they mean is like, I'm pressing hard on my faith. I'm making sure that what my parents taught me is true. I have these doubts that I heard from TikTok. I want to know if I can trust my Bible. Well, we would say to that young person, "That's you should do that. You should press hard on your faith. You should ask those hard questions. But if we tell that kid, oh, good, just as long as you're doing a healthy deconstruction, well, they're going to they're going to go on social media and be introduced to a complete world of propaganda, of misinformation, of demonstrably false information. And it operates a lot like propaganda, like almost like Mm -hmm. my friend calls it conspiracy theories for progressives. Right. This is a lot of misinformation. And, And we're not saying that we should never let our kids be exposed to TikTok videos from deconstructionists. Obviously, you do this. You know, you you teach kids to red pen those things in Mm -hmm. the safety of being discipled, in the safety of, you know, being in a controlled environment. But just to unleash our kids into that hashtag, um, of course, they're going to become incredibly confused. And so I think it introduces a lot of confusion. And I, it just it just sticks in with me. Like, why do we need a postmodern word yeah. that has such a specific meaning in culture and a history behind it? Why are we so desperate to use this word to describe something Christians should be doing all along, which is discernment? It's it's making sure what you believe is true, testing all things, holding fast to what is good. Why all of a sudden do we need a postmodern word to describe that? And that just, and I, here, I can't let that go. I can't let it and, go. And, and I think one of the reasons is to be relevant. Right. It's like, hey, this is the word that's being used. And so, hey, I'm the youth pastor and I'm talking with my kids and they've heard the word deconstruction. Maybe they have some other friends who are talking about deconstruction. Hey, let's deconstruct together. You know, I'm using the the vocabulary that you guys are using. And not only does it create confusion, but it's a little awkward, I think. I mean, we make this point in the book where it's like, you know, the youth pastor, you know, in the 90s who is saying, you know, let's uh I know you guys are getting high on marijuana, but we got to get high on the most high, you know, like, give me a break. Like, what are you (laughs) talking about? You know, girls, you don't need a boyfriend. Jesus is your boyfriend. And now you're just using terms to mean something. You're just creating confusion and you're just, you know, it's a little awkward. 
And I yeah. think actually, I think young people especially see through that insincerity, that inauthenticity. Um, so, so you're right about that. I think that's, well, that's and part of it. Those two examples specifically, especially growing up in the youth group, evangelical youth group culture of the 80s and 90s, as I did. Mm. I think that those two particular things that I'm sure I heard somewhere as a youth led to a deep misunderstanding of God in a lot of people. I mean, the whole Jesus is your boyfriend, it's like almost a culture in in the worship music that we hear. It's like, mm. and it introduced this idea that is just, it's, it's equivocating on the word. It's using the word in two different ways. And Jesus yeah. is not your boyfriend. And yeah. it, getting high on the Holy Ghost almost introduced this idea that I need to have this experiential thing or else I'm not in communion with God. I have to, you know, feel these feelings. And even as harmless as they may sound and as cool as they may sound, it actually causes a lot of theological damage, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exactly right. Um, you, uh, you got, you got the wheel spinning and, uh, but we gotta, we gotta keep, we gotta keep moving here. Um, I, I think that there's some observations we make in the book about how, deconstruction is fundamentally flawed as a process that honestly before going deep and starting to starting to listen to and read and watch the the kind of the deconstructionists themselves i was i was completely unaware and now as part of my when i present on this what i do is play these videos of these deconstructionists making this kind of case for themselves like here's what deconstruction is and honestly just playing the videos shows the contradict uh, shows the congregation the problems with the view now i'm thinking of three in particular we've mentioned no biblical authority um but there's two others that we talk about one is um that there's no right destination and the mm -hmm. other is it's a never-ending process could you could you say something about those three things yeah. So in our research, it's really interesting because it's difficult to analyze the movement as a whole because people land in so many different places. Some people land in progressive Christianity. Some land in agnosticism. Some land uh, saying I'm an agnostic or I'm some kind of secular humanist. But a lot of people in the deconstruction movement advocate for not landing anywhere. And and I think ultimately, mm. even the people that land in some of those places are persuaded by the ones who say you shouldn't land anywhere. And one of the people that we talk about in the book who has a really big platform in the deconstruction space is a guy called the Naked Pastor. Now, as Tim has said in several interviews, don't Google that because <laughs> that might take you down a, a dark Trouble. place you don't want to go to. But um, yeah. the Naked Pastor, he, he says over and over again, don't land, don't form any new beliefs, just keep deconstructing. In fact, he says, if you form new beliefs, you'll just have to deconstruct those. Just keep asking questions. And then he goes on to say, in fact, questions are the answer. Now, there's a couple of things that, of course, for every apologist who's listening to this, already your, your skin is crawling with the logical fallacies, right, in, in just mm -hmm. those statements. Because, of course, yeah. it's a belief to say you shouldn't form new beliefs. And to say questions are the answers is actually a statement. That's not a question. So that can't be the answer. So it refutes itself, right? Um, so that's yeah. just a little logic fun there. But but that is mm. a very popular view is that you, you really – and I think um, there was even a couple of other that we, others that we quote in the book that are saying this. Yeah. And so – deconstruction really is more of a method, right? It's not really about where you go. And that's the other mm -hmm. thing that you mentioned is that there's no goal. And this is another thing Naked Pastor says and others say is you don't have a goal. 
And this is why we in this if the deconstructionists who critique our definition could just hear this, that's one of the reasons we said a rejection of biblical authority, because if you part of the the nature of deconstruction is getting rid of any sort of external source of authority for truth. Right. It's you. It's it's an internal thing. And I think that if we were face to face and asking these questions, they would say, well, well, yeah, no, you shouldn't use biblical authority, of course. Because that's sort of this um, this system of oppression that's just seeking to keep you in the fold. And, you know, there's so many TikTok videos claiming that. So, yeah, no goal. Don't form new beliefs. And I can't remember the first one you said, but you could probably comment on that one, too, because. I, yeah, I well, mean, you were in yeah, there, too. You got it. And I actually wrote an article on uh, Standard Reasons website. People can check it out. I think I titled it Why I Changed My Mind About Deconstruction. And these are just three particular reasons. But yeah, that first one where there's no right destination, there's no right place to land. That is, I mean, you hear that over and over again. And of course, it makes sense when you start to see the deconstruction project for what it is. It it makes sense. Of course, it doesn't matter where you land because truth, objective truth is not what's the goal here. It's it's something else. Maybe it's your personal yeah. happiness or or whatever. Um, but it's not about it's not about truth. And then of course it just never ends, as you mentioned. And then finally, there's no biblical authority. And by the way, we see people in this movement saying things like, um, oh, you have a problem with penal substitutionary atonement? Well, Paul was wrong. Yeah. What? Wait a second. So it's it's not that I'm going to now refute penal substitution by using other verses or other the context or whatever. That's not what's done. The response is, well, yeah, that's what Paul taught, but Paul was wrong. And by the way, it's okay to say the Bible is wrong. And if we if we don't say the Bible, if we can't say the Bible is wrong, well, that's just people using power. That's mm-hmm. pastors, you know, trying to control their congregation, trying to control their people. And of course, when when truth dies, you're just left with power. Actually, I think we yep. quoted Greg Kokel saying that in the book. We when did, when yeah. truth dies, you're just left with power. But I, we'll come back to that in, in a minute. Um, I want to... I think deconstruction, you mentioned by saying it's it's not new. And um, and we write about this in the book. We actually have a chapter, we call it rerun. And so for people who, you know, are older than 40, you know what a rerun <laughs> is. You know, this is when you watch cable TV and you had to be there to watch it, you know? And if if you didn't make the time, if you, you know, were in the bathroom or something, the restroom, you missed out, yeah. you know? Unless there was a rerun where they would replay the same episode. Well, we say this whole deconstruction thing, it's like a rerun. And in fact, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, is a pretty, that's a bold claim. In fact, we, uh, I remember when we wrote uh, the line in the book that Satan is the father of faith deconstruction. And yeah. we Amy Amy had read through our book and she was helping with some edits. And I remember her sending a text message to me saying, basically, Tim, that's a great line, but people like the deconstructions are going to hate this, you yeah. know? So so what do we mean by that? What do we mean Satan is the father of modern, you know, deconstruction? Well, so because he's the father of lies. And mm-hmm. so there is such a deceptive element to deconstruction because its primary purpose is, see, there is a goal. And that's the thing is, yes, the deconstructionists will say 
There's no goal, but there is a goal. And the goal is to get you to leave what they call toxic theology. This is why they told me I had not deconstructed, because I still hold to the historic Christian gospel that would basically say, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is that savior. He lived a sinless life, died a bloody death on a cross as my substitute, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, will return to judge the living and the dead. And there are these eternal destinations of heaven and hell, because I believe that that's toxic theology. And so the uh, that is the goal. That it, Make no mistake, the goal of deconstruction is to get you to leave that behind, because mm-hmm. from that, in the mind of the deconstructionist, flows all manner of error, like the church's stance on sexuality, um, what they perceive to be unholy political alliances. And uh, and by the way, that encompasses any conservative Christian who might be conservatively, you know, politically conservative, regardless of how they may feel about Trump, although Trump plays a huge role in the, does, yeah. the deconstruction thing as well. We we have to acknowledge that. The, the whole yeah. Trump thing just broke people's brains. I forget who somebody said that. And I was like, that is a perfect way to put it. Trump just broke everybody's brain. And it just— yeah. Yeah. So um, that that was definitely uh, an issue. And so I think that um, in analyzing the movement, we just to, to keep those things in mind that that they'll and this is why they're pushing back so hard on us, Tim, I think, is that they're saying, you know, why would you say that you don't understand? But then in all the comments they'll make, they kind of prove our definition and prove what we're saying to be true. So it's it, I'm not sure that the movement is that self-aware of what is actually happening, but it is definitely has a goal, and that's to leave historic Christianity. Yeah. And by the way, we have a goal and we have a guide. Yeah. Okay. Our guide yes. is scripture and our goal is sound doctrine. Okay. We're not hiding that. That is our agenda. I know they talk about, you know, those conservative uh, apologists who wrote this book, they got an agenda. Yeah. yeah we're not we hiding do. that. That's we right. wrote, we made, we're explicit about our agenda. We don't want anyone to leave Christianity. We want them to, of course, rethink their faith. We want them to grow stronger faith. We want them to um, have evidence for their convictions. I mean, all those things. But um, we're not playing games here. And these guys who are going around saying, well, there's no guide, you know, although you can pay me to help you to guide yeah. you through your deconstruction. I mean, and that's sometimes De- we're talking like pe- deconstructionists charging churches $500 consultation fees just to Zoom with the church to help them, you know, analyze them. And look, I'm not saying it's wrong to charge for services that you're, sure. you know, if you're working, of course, but to claim otherwise is what yeah. is, is kind of the hypocrisy yeah. is yeah. they'll, they rail against evangelical culture, They'll say, oh, you guys are just writing this book because you want to make a bunch of money. But they're writing books that they're selling. So there's a, there's yeah. a little bit of a hypocritical element in that as well, I think. Yeah. No, I, I think you're exactly right about that. Um, okay. One of the, the difficult aspects of this book, um, for, for I think for both of us, was trying to balance truth and compassion. Um, in the book, we even talk about um, this deconstruction stuff. It's like you're going to a burial, mm. but it's also like you're going into battle and mm-hmm. how you how you navigate that. And this was one of those things that kept me up at night, actually. It's like, are we coming too hard with the truth? Are we being you know too soft with the compassion? You know, like, how do we balance this? Fortunately, mm-hmm. I think that we've we've received a number of positive reviews about you know, the balance there. I'm just curious, can you kind of flesh out for our listeners, you know, what we're talking about with the the burial and the battle? 
Yeah, yeah. This is so important because I think this is, I think, where John was misunderstood when he said mm-hmm. it's time to declare war on the Christian deconstruction movement. He wasn't saying we're declaring war on individual people who are hurting and confused and suffering from church abuse and things like that. In fact, John's one of the most compassionate people I know, and he would totally cry with those who cry in those kind of situations. But it's the ideology that he wants to declare war on. And so maybe a helpful way to think about it would be like a disease or like a pandemic. You know, you have people dying of a disease. You want to declare war on that disease because you love the people who are dying from it. You don't want people to catch the disease and become sick or whatever might happen, um, the negative fallout from that disease. And so, you know, and of course, we're talking about metaphorically, spiritually, right? I I feel like it's sad that we're in a time where we have to make that distinction. We're not calling, you know, a a militia to arms right now. This is spiritual warfare. And Tim, and you know, you and I talked about this quite a bit when we were researching we, you know, if you don't like war language, if you don't like war metaphors, you're not going to like the Bible because the Bible mm-hmm. is filled with war metaphors. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things deconstructionists rail about is the war metaphors that evangelicals use. Well, that's because that's all throughout the Bible. Yeah. And so I, I think that that was our heart. Like we wanted to declare war on this insidious, um, you know, thing that's taking people's faith away. For the sake of the people, because we have compassion on the people who are being confused by it and deceived by it and just sort of swinging back around to the, you know, the father of, of deconstruction, the devil being the father of deconstruction. It's the same thing. Like, we're not saying that somebody who's in the deconstruction movement is like, you're a child of the devil. I mean, although Jesus used words like that, John the Baptist used language like that, but we're not Mm -hmm. using language like that, but we're saying we love you. We love you, deconstructionist. And we want to go after the thing that's trying to take you down, the thing that's trying to take your faith away, the thing that's trying to remove you from reality and lining up what you believe with what's real and true and your primary purpose for which you were created, which is to know God and love him and and worship him and be in his presence. And so when we say that, that Satan is the father of deconstruction, it's because he's come up with a really good scheme. He's come up with a great scheme. He uses a lot of legitimate critiques, like the legitimate spiritual abuse that people go through, um, the legitimate hypocrisy that people have observed, um, legitimately bad theology in a lot of evangelical churches. Sure, we'll we'll concede all of that. But then he's wrapped it up in this nice little bow of like, you know what? The problem is actually the beliefs. That's the problem. And that's why he's the father of deconstruction, because he's like— you know what? The words don't even have objective meaning. What does it even mean? You just need to follow your own heart. And this is exactly what he did with Eve in the garden. And so I think our heart was to keep that. And I love the metaphor. I think you came up with it, Tim, where it's like, um, we we have tears in our eyes and a sword in our hands or something like that. And that's really how we tried to approach this topic. Yeah. It's it's the have mercy on those who doubt on the one hand, you know, Jude 22. And then you have like, you know, refute those who contradict kind of thing on the other hand. And of course, Jesus himself talks about wolves and we have to, and I know that's, it's not friendly, you know, to call a deconstructionist a wolf, you know, these, I mean, I'm talking about the leaders of this movement who are making videos here, come to me, I will help you deconstruct, you know, this kind of thing. It's all, it's very evangelistic. You know, we talked about doing a whole chapter in the book 
on uh, on how this is almost like a pseudo religion. Now that didn't make it. There was a lot of stuff. I think like fifteen thousand words um, that we just cut from this book. You know, Tyndale wanted a certain number of words, I think sixty thousand or sixty five thousand, and we had all this extra stuff. But that was one of the things we talked about: is this pseudo religious nature. There's a there's like a a great decommission. I think is what we end up calling it. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's like a go into the world teaching them to deconstruct, you know, yeah. all that I've commanded you. And that kind of thing that that's that's definitely um out there. And I, I uh, think this is important because this is actually something we had to cut out of the book because we just couldn't land the plane on it. But I do think yeah. there's something to it. It's like there's so much of a religious nature about this thing. You have the mm-hmm. the testimony, which is the deconstruction story. You have the p- priests and the prophets, the leaders. There's a sense of discipleship where you join these mm-hmm. online communities and you are discipled through your deconstruction. In fact, the liturgists, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but when I began researching for this book, they had 24-7 online rooms open for you to go in and deconstruct. Somebody would be in there to help you deconstruct 24-7. So there's a very evangelist, there's the evangelism, and and it's very interesting that it's so much it's so much a religion. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we just, there was a, we was a rabbit trail. We had to not go there in the book though. That's right. And so maybe someone else will write that book. Um, there's, yeah. there's this other aspect um, and you've touched on a little bit, the, the, the crisis and, and the triggers that cause people to deconstruct. Now, I actually think, again, this was an insight, again, after researching, a lot of people talk about deconstruction and the crisis is just part of it. You know, Mm -hmm. and and what we did, I think um, that might be helpful for people is to tease out that there's a distinction between the trigger event or the crisis someone goes through or series of triggers and deconstruction itself, because it turns out two people can grow up in the same home. They Mm -hmm. can have some of the similar experiences, face the same kind of crisis, and yet one person deconstructs and the other doesn't. Maybe the other ends up coming out with an even stronger faith in Christ. So so what's going on there? Maybe you could say something about the kinds of triggers, and you've said a little bit already about that, but also like, what is the difference between the person who does deconstruct and the one who was a good candidate, but actually didn't? Right. So this was a another tough thing for us to think through because I had a particular family in my mind where it was three siblings. The youngest sibling uh, passed away, and that was a oh, wow. big trigger event in the family. And so the other two siblings responded in exact opposite ways. One of them just went into God like you can't imagine, just became a much stronger Christian. And the other one was— uh, a Christian, I guess, I don't know, but completely deconstructed and, and claimed atheism. And this was the trigger event, but they grew up in the same, obviously, same home, had the same parents, went to the same church, had the same youth pastors, went on the same mission trips, all of that stuff. So what I began to think about, and as we were hashing this out, what we were thinking about is that it's not just a crisis that can cause a deconstruction, because we've all had different crises. I mean, goodness gracious, think about Corey Ten Boom being mm-hmm. sent to the concentration camp. That's a crisis for you, but she didn't deconstruct, So, but I'm sure somebody else might have walked away from the faith or, or whatever. And so what is it? So we, we came up with this idea that I think there's an intersection between the foundation 
and the crisis. So I use the the analogy of when I was, I don't know if, if our, our listeners will remember that California earthquake in 1993, I think it was, or 94 in Northridge, the Northridge earthquake. Well, I was living in Chatsworth, this is right next to Northridge, and I felt the earthquake. And I remember uh, going out uh, after and like our whole street, the houses were pretty much okay. We had a little bit of damage to the chimney, I think. But you turned one, I mean, just one block over. And there were houses that were half on the ground, chimneys completely detached from the house and crumbled. And then we went over and saw the mall, our, the big department store we always went to was just laying, like the, the sign was literally on the ground and it was just completely demolished. And I thought, why is it that this one row of houses was pretty much fine, but just right here? They were on the ground. Well, it has to do with the foundation and where the fault line is, you know, hitting it from. So there's so many different interlocking factors. So I think the foundation might speak to the person's experiences growing up, maybe their personal commitment to Christ, what their biblical knowledge might be. You could even have those two people where one really got into the Bible and one just heard what the youth pastor said every week and that was all they got. So there's different foundational issues at play and then the crisis comes. And then depending on what that person's foundation looks like, I mean, that crisis or even series of crises can have an effect that can send somebody into a deconstruction. And we don't speculate on this in the book, but it's my personal sort of speculation that, and I've I've started to say this in interviews and I, I do believe it's true. I think in a broader sense, in God's sovereignty, this deconstruction movement might be his mercy because you have a lot of people who are growing up in churches. We have these massive mega churches, seeker sensitive models, where you might have a lot of people going to church that think they're Christians but aren't. And they could have lived and died thinking they were Christians. But you have this deconstruction phenomenon in a way, and this is why I say maybe it's God's mercy. I don't know, but it you know you're not a Christian if you deconstruct. And that's a mercy because then you have an opportunity to truly trust in Christ at that point. And so it's my I suspect that a lot of people who deconstruct, and we kind of talked about this with Sean McDowell a little bit, McDowell, yeah. is that they probably weren't truly Christian in the first place because you can't deconstruct that. And that's, I think, why I couldn't have walked away, even as confused as I was. So I think there's a lot of interlocking factors there. Sure. And yeah, now you got me thinking, like, it could be the case that maybe they were Christian, but they grew up in that Christian home and they didn't take it seriously. You know, it's like yeah. the roots were really shallow. There's something there, but it wasn't. And it took a, an event like that to really, okay, I got to own this for myself. You know, I got to drive those roots down deeper. And, uh, and oftentimes that happens through these kinds of situations, whether it's the crisis or yeah. the deconstruction. That's good. Um, one of the so you've mentioned uh, toxic theology a number of times, kind of as we've gone here, and this is this is one of the the triggers or the crises that we talk about in the book. Um, can you kind of because I I think this is big. This is like a huge aspect to this. It's not just um, when people talk about spiritual abuse. Um, there is legitimate. You've mentioned this real yeah. legitimate abuse where a pastor abuses his authority, his power, this kind of thing. But then there's there's spiritual abuse that is just telling someone that Jesus died for their sins. Yeah. I mean, this is, we talk about this in the book. Yeah. There are it, it kind of on these online communities and, and on the blogs, there are deconstructions talking about how if you tell someone that they're a sinner, that Jesus died for their sins, 
then you are, you're engaging in abuse. Like you're Mm -hmm. telling, it's like child abuse. Don't tell your kids that, you know? So could you, and that's just one example. We could talk about hell, complementarianism, Mm -hmm. all these different things. Yeah. So kind of flesh that out. What, what's going on there with this whole toxic theology stuff? Well, it was an interesting exchange I had on Facebook a couple, maybe three, four years ago even, where uh, a deconstructionist had come on under one of my posts and saying, you know, there's so much spiritual abuse. You're just denying that there's spiritual abuse. And I, I take spiritual abuse very seriously because I've been through it. I have loved ones who have been through it harrowing stories. So um, I am in no, I'm not at all denying that spiritual abuse exists, especially with the rise of the seeker sensitive model, the mega church model, where I think that attracts a lot of narcissistic pastors who are, you know, the celebrity cult of personality kind of thing. So I think churches like that are ripe for spiritual abuse. And I've seen it happen. It's happened to me. It's happened to my friends. So I take it very seriously. But I came into the comments and I said, I said just that. No, I actually take spiritual abuse very seriously. I've been through it. I know it's real. Um, But the problem is, is that in deconstruction and in progressive Christianity, people will say that just being taught substitutionary atonement is abuse. Mm -hmm. And a deconstructionist came in and said, substitutionary atonement is abuse to teach that. It's psychologically damaging to teach somebody that. So that, you know, I thought, okay, so I'm on to something here. And so that's a difficult thing in the abuse conversation is because you have to untie some knots. There's legitimate abuse, which is real. And then there's sort of perceived abuse because maybe you were told you can't have membership in this church if you are in an unholy sexual relationship, unrepentant, right? If you refuse to repent of your unholy sexual relationship, you can't be a member here. Well, I was abused. I was oppressed by that. So the abuse conversation is huge. It's mm-hmm. um, it's a ball of knots that can really span legitimate and what I would call illegitimate abuse claims. Yeah. And that's a tough one to navigate, especially on a personal level with people who are going through it. In the book, I think it was... I think it was you that came up with the illustration of someone um, coming up to a person that's on the ground and just trying to beat on their chest. Yeah. And it's like, and you ask the question, is this abuse? And, and most people are like, yeah, it's just, they're beating on their chest. This is not good, you know, but what have you found out that what's really going on is that person's heart has gone into fibrillation or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, it's stopped and you have, and what the person is doing when they beat on their chest is actually called CPR. They're doing chest compressions. Now, does that change? Does that change whether you're calling this abuse or not? Well, of course it does. What changed the action? No. What changed is knowing the truth of the matter of the situation. Mm -hmm. This wasn't someone beating someone up. This was someone trying to save someone's life. Right. And I, and I think it's a really good illustration and it makes the point, look, telling someone that they're a sinner is abuse. If that's not true, that they're a sinner, you know, if that's not true. Okay. But if it's true and this is a step that leads towards their repentance and their, and eternal life, then it's, it's like the best thing you could tell someone. I mean, it's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. This it's good news for a reason, because the bad news is actually true. It's not just we're making this stuff up. And the same goes with hell. Hell is a man. It's it's a it's a terrible place. No one wants to go there. They say it's child abuse to tell your kids that. Well, hold on a second. I tell my kids not to touch a hot stove or take a knife and jam it into the electrical socket. Is that abuse? 
Right. No, it's not abuse. I'm informing them that if they take this knife and jam it in the socket in the wall, they're, they get electrocuted and possibly killed. Yeah. And so I'm warning them for a good reason. Again, it's the truth of the matter. And if there really is a place called hell and you go there for being a sinner, well, then, then this is the kind of thing that we ought to be telling people so they don't go there, you know? Right. Um, so anyways, I think that the, that connection that you made is, was brilliant. I'm so glad that's uh, in the book. I think it's going to be helpful for people. Now, I'm just looking at the clock here. A couple more things. I want to get some practical advice in a second. Um, just briefly, just briefly, because I'm already seeing some people straw manning our, our mm-hmm. position a little bit. You know, they're saying things like, you know, Tim and Elisa, they don't want you to question. They, they are shaming you if you have doubts. So first of all, is that true? Um, and if it's not true, what, what are we recommending as kind yeah. of the alternative to deconstruction? How to tell if someone has not read your book without telling you, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's they right. obviously have not read the book if they're making that claim. Yeah. So I think that, um, that is one of the biggest misconceptions that I just continually, I beat this drum because I want people to hear us. We are apologists. We want people to ask hard questions. We love hard questions. We don't want young people to push down their doubts. We don't want to shun questions. In fact, we have a whole chapter on questions where we encourage every pastor in America to have a Q&A after yeah. their sermon so that people can ask whatever question is on their mind. We want that to happen. But what we're saying is that's not deconstruction. Asking honest questions, and by the way, as you brilliantly wrote in the book, not all questions are seeking answers. Some questions are seeking exits, and I think pastors need to understand that because this was a personal experience I had where somebody I knew that was deconstructing kept asking me the same question over and over again about like the biblical manuscripts, and I kept giving her books to read and articles and and answers to her questions, and she just kept rephrasing the question, and I realized she doesn't want the answer. She wants the exit. She's looking for the Bart Ehrman or the somebody to give her the permission to leave behind this book that she thinks is actually oppressive to her. And that's really what's going on. And so I think that's what we see going on in the hashtag a lot. But no, we are not saying to push down or not, you know, ask the hard questions or something like that. That's just ridiculous. That's good. Okay. That's, we got that clarified. Excellent. Um, Okay. We've got three minutes left. Um, we need to say something about kind of practical advice. I think, and you did most of the heavy lifting on this chapter um, in the book called Advice. It is it is worth the price of the book, okay? And I can say that because Elisa did, wrote most of that chapter. <laughs> so Elisa, help, uh, just, you know, sketch out, people have to get the book to read it, but in, you know, kind of three minutes, give us the, what's what's the best advice we can give? Right. This And this is the number one question I receive when I'm out speaking is, how do I talk to the person in my life that's deconstructing? And so we actually suggest asking a lot of kind of diagnostic questions about your relationship with this person, mm. because how you're going to navigate this with a deconstructing spouse is going to be really different than how you might navigate this with a deconstructing teenager or how an older couple might navigate it with an adult child who's in deconstruction and they have grandkids to think about. And there's all sorts of different relationship dynamics to consider. So if there's tension in the relationship due to the deconstruction, which they may or may not even be talking to you about, 
We give some counterintuitive advice, but I, I really think this has set a lot of people free. I've, to, I've had people tell me, like, this is what we've been doing. Thank you. It, it just validated the path we've been taking. But you have to understand the nature of what your loved one is going through. Again, this is not a truth quest. This is not them wanting to get their theology correct. If they're de- deconstructing as we're defining it, right, they might be defining it wrongly. And that's good. That'd be great because then they're probably seeking truth and maybe it's something else. But if they truly are deconstructing, they've already decided you're an unsafe and harmful person. So they don't want to talk to you. They don't want your your truth claims or your, you know, your debate or whatever that is. They see that as being attacked because Mm -hmm. they believe that what you believe makes you a harmful person. So the impetus to disconnect from you and the rest of their family and the church and all of that is very strong. So what we tell people, the biggest piece of advice we could give, especially if there's tension, is that you have permission to back off. And just try to maintain the relationship. Just try to stay in their life because they're not going to listen to you, at least in this crisis phase. Maybe you can get down the road to a phase where you could, you could, you know, pull out your tactics and ask some of those, those diagnostic questions. But in this time, it's really okay to just live the beauty of the gospel out in front of them, love them, try to maintain that relationship. Um, you're not going to fix their theology over coffee. This didn't happen over coffee. It's probably not going to be fixed over coffee. So it's really, that's okay. Put the, just, just maintain the relationship and then hope and pray that you can get to a point where maybe those conversations can happen down the road. Yeah. And, and we go into more, more steps there that people can follow. Um, again, it's, it's worth the price of the book. One of the things that I, and we're at the top of the hour here is I, I just want to say that we spent a lot of time thinking about how to end this book. And I think we're, we, we end with something called the Saturday and the message is really hope. Isn't that right? Like we really want our readers to see that there is hope at the end of this. And uh, I know that there's going to be a lot of people who um, hear this podcast, who know someone, have a loved one who's going through deconstruction. And we would want them to to know that there is hope on the end of this. Um, Maybe uh, in in you know, the last 20 seconds here, if you, you know, had a a message of, of hope to leave, what would you, what would you say? I would say this thing is brand new. We have no idea how this is going to turn out. And I I hope, it's my hope, that this is going to end in a big revival. I think God's going to draw people to himself that maybe never were with him to start with. And it's his mercy. And I have tons of hope. Well, that is a good word to leave on. Alisa, thank you for joining me for this hour. The time just flew by. Um, really appreciate you and, uh, and the, the work that we've done together. And yeah. all you who are listening at Santa Reason, we appreciate you coming along with us. Uh, until next time, give them heaven.